All right, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning, this Lord's Day. Uh, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it, said the psalmist. And so may our hearts rejoice as we gather before you to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your word go forth from our pastor this morning with power and bless him, anoint him by your spirit to preach your word. In this class this morning, uh, help me and help us to see some of the wonders of your word. And we thank you, Father, for uh, the opportunity to, to speak from the Psalms. And as we conclude the class this week, I pray, Father, that we will be able to take away things that will inspire us and encourage us in these coming days. So we commit this class to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just a couple of words as I start here, and I am going to be going fast today. I've already rehearsed this. I can get it all in if, if I don't breathe, if I keep talking, if we move through, and so on. Uh, we'll see how that works. Uh, thinking about uh, the Word of God, the Psalms in particular, and inspiration of Scripture, uh, Peter wrote this. We have a more prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Let's remember that the Word of God that we're dealing with comes from the spoken Word of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ to us. So therefore, when the Word speaks, God speaks, and the Spirit speaks to us, and Christ speaks to us through the Word. In fact, let me read this before we start today. This is from Luke 24, after Jesus had been resurrected and with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Familiar words but they're words that apply to us today. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When we are reading, I'm getting chills thinking about this. When we read the Psalms, we are, we are reading the words the inspired words of Christ coming through the psalmist. And that's why in some places when you're reading in the psalms, you, you will find David saying some things and you're reading that and you do a double take. I can remember the first time I was preaching through the psalms and I came to a couple passages about David. Sounds a little bit self-righteous. Sounds a little bit too high, you know. I think the crown fits a little too tight on your head right now. Except for the fact that he is speaking beyond himself. It is the Spirit of Christ speaking through David and the psalmist to tell us about Christ and what Christ would say. And so I can remember when I had to grapple with that at times, and because I would, I would say that and I'd want to pray the psalm and I'd say, can I really pray this? I mean, I'm not that righteous, David. Well, he wasn't either. And we know that because he over and over confessed his own sin. 
So just remember that there is there are some comparative things. You've got the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman and the seed of David combating there. And so sometimes it's, it's relative righteousness he's talking about as compared to the real wicked guys. I know you need to be careful there. You don't become self-righteous. But most often he is speaking about Christ. And we'll see that in some today. So get your seatbelts fastened. Be sure your tables are in the upright lock position because we are about to go. W. Robert Godfrey says this uh, about this section of the psalm known as Book 3. It represents a real crisis of faith for the people of God. That sense of crisis, or at least struggles, characteristics in 14 of the 17 psalms in Book 3. Uh, One writer, uh, not surprisingly, had this to say that, that, that it should not surprise us there's a crisis here and they're struggling some because these psalms now are set in the exile. The people of God have been ripped from their homes. Jerusalem has been devastated. They have uh, now gone into other countries. And so it is a very um, bad situation. They find themselves and they're wondering, why? Why? Now we know it's always easier for outside looking in. We can see that. But they were living in this, and it went on and on and on. So we're going to see some struggles here. And so this morning we're, we're going to begin by going to um, a time of crisis and confusion in Psalm 73. Uh, this is where we stopped last time. Uh, the world around Asaph and his sons appears to be prospering. Everybody's doing great except for God's people, and they're languishing. In this struggle, uh, they, he looks around and he sees the, the health and wealth and happiness and prosperity of the wicked uh, here that uh, are, surrounds him. And he appears to be in distress and he seems to be faltering. If you look at Psalm 73, and please today have an open Bible for yourself. I won't be able to put everything on the screen, but the Psalms, having an open Psalm or, or Psalter will help you. Uh, verses 2 and 3 talks about that he was nearly stumbling. His feet almost slipped. So why do the wicked flourish while God's people uh, feel abandoned? If you look at the opening verses of Psalm 73, and I will read some of those. Truly God is good to Israel. That's good, isn't it? God is good to those who are pure in heart. But... As for me, my feet almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers their garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. It goes on and on. So he looks around and he sees what the world's doing. I'm sure you've never seen that. I'm sure you've never done that in this world. You look around. Why do they get this? Why do they get that? Why can't I get ahead? Why can't I make progress on this or that or the other? We see how the wicked prosper. This is exactly where he is. So, uh, the man here 
in that verse 1, he can quote the creed. Did you notice that? You know, that, that, that uh, God is good to Israel. That's the creed. But now when it comes to him and his own heart, but as for me, so there's a sense of struggle that goes on. Is it really true? Is it true that God is good? Well, what about his promises? I, I'm not laying hold of the promises here. Verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 73 mark a turning point for Asaph and for all who are perplexed by the, the, how the wicked seems to prosper. And so, third, fourth bullet down here, when I, thought about, uh, when I thought how to understand this, how can I grapple with this? How can I come to terms with this? It seemed a wearisome task until he had somehow forgotten Psalm 1, the foundation of everything, and how the end will play out for the righteous and for the wicked. There may be an interim here in which there is struggles and we're, we're wondering why, why, why. But in the end play, there's a difference between the righteous and the wicked and who receives reward and who does not. It was only in God's temple and the teaching that he got there from God's law that he found help in his struggle with every envy, with every doubt that he had, verse 17, and he had lost sight of the end game. Verse 24 marks another turning point in the psalm. Therefore, what is truly valuable to be prized, to be sought after in this world? Well, verses 25 and 26 tells us here, that last bullet. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and He is my portion forever. We want a piece of the action here and now. That's understandable. But we have to realize that the, the real end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, not just my life here and now. And so, uh, this song ends... It finds its, uh, uh, at the end of the psalm, verse 28, he really deals with this in his heart. He says, but for me. Now, back there in verse number one, but as for me, but now he's coming down, he said, but for me. I know God is truly good to Israel, but for me, here, it is good to be near to God. My problem was I drifted. The problem was I lost my perspective. And so it's good for me to be near to God, and I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of his works. So that's Psalm 73. Psalm 74, now, turn the page. By way of contrast to the world of the wicked, let's look at life in Israel, what it really was, and why there's so much confusion. It was rather bleak, materially speaking. The opening lines here ask, Strong and hard questions. Look at verse 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Look at that word. I mean, they haven't lived forever yet. But they think it's that way. They feel it that way. Why does your anger, uh, your anger smoke against the sheep of your path? I, I thought we were sheep. I feel like I'm on the grill. And then... 
here looking around at the landscape around this man in Jerusalem, he describes it like a battle zone. Verses 7 and 8. They, verse, that's the third bullet here. They set your sanctuary on fire. This is what he's seeing. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. And they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Can you picture this? I'll tell you something that will help you picture this. Think Turkey and what you saw in the pictures of the devastation with everything knocked down. That's what Jerusalem was at this point. The holy city of God, the dwelling place of God. It's leveled. Think Ukraine and what the pictures you've seen there. This is what they were seeing in Jerusalem after these invasions. The holy city was destroyed. Where can hope and consolation be found? It looks like God has his hands in his pockets. Verse 11 says, in the folds, are your hands in the folds of your garment? Got your hands in your pocket. Lord, what are you doing? We need help. But Asaph brings his thoughts back to God, his faithfulness, his power. In the past, verses 12 to 17 here of Psalm 74, in rescuing Israel from bondage in his absolute control over all creation, and he says here in verse 20 to God, Have regard for the covenant. And in verse 22, Arise, O God, defend your cause. And as Israel was delivered and then prospered after the bondage of Exodus, Asaph looks for another exodus. This is going to be a common theme. Remember the covenant, he says in verse 20. Now, if we take this to the New Testament, this looking for the consolation of, of Israel, we will find that that's exactly what was happening in the time that Jesus was born. Uh, you look at Luke 2.25, believers there were looking for the consolation of Israel, it says. And when Jesus was taken to the temple to be baptized, there was a man named Simeon, an old man, who took the child in his arms. And he said this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is it. This is what we've been looking for. This is who we've been looking for. This is the consolation. So the consolation was coming. The king was coming. But not yet. We're not at that point. Let's come along to Psalm 77. You'll notice I'm skipping some psalms. I've got to do a lot of skipping today. I'm trying to pick up highlights, and I'm trying to pick up themes for you as well. Otherwise, we'll be here through the next sermon and into Sunday night prayer meeting. Okay, so um, devastation, again, is the focus here because there is a day of trouble, verse 2 tells us. Where is God? Why doesn't he do something? You keep hearing this over and over in this book three of the Psalms. Psalm 77, beginning in verse 6, the latter part. Then my spirit made diligent search. Do you know how everybody's searching? Have you seen that so far? And he's, they're looking. They're trying to understand. They're grappling with this. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be faithful? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? I just love the way they use the word forever. When is this going to stop? And his promises uh, at the end 
for all time? Is this the end? Is this it? I mean, we, we've lived like this, and, and here, here's all we get. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut up his compassion? Christopher Ashe writes this. One single question is put six times in verses 7 through 9. It voices the most fearful anxiety a soul can harbor. This. Was I right? Were we right to believe that the God of covenant love would be faithful to his promises? Were we right or were we wrong? We just don't see it. We don't feel it. We're not experiencing this. Verse 10. Verse 10 sounds like uh, he brings forth a different melody, a new melodic line here. When he says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'm going to look back to see how God's hand worked in the past. And that's the way we should always, what we should always remember too. Don't just always consider your present when you're in trouble. Think of what God has done in the past in your life. That's what they're doing here. He remembers the love and the faithfulness of God in the past. He takes heart for what lies ahead because of it. Psalm 77, it says, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You had someone there to lead them. You know what they need in this moment? They need a shepherd king again. Where is a good shepherd, a great shepherd to lead us? He's coming. He's coming. Now we come to then some of the backdrop of why all this has happened in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a parable. Verse 2 tells us it's a lesson to be learned from history. What we're doing here in this psalm is reliving Israel's past failures and also witnessing God's continued faithfulness in spite of our failures. In spite of what God uh, was doing and, and, and had done for his people, they repeatedly failed and were faithless or unfaithful to him. Here Asaph delivers a message to God's people that confronts and convicts us all regarding our responsibility, therefore, to the next generation and why it's important for us to remember and to take action. The appeal here is first and foremost for faithful fathers. And I'm speaking to me. I'm speaking to you, uh, fathers in this room, who, who need to be committed to leading their children to know God, to know his works, to know his faithfulness. But the clear implications of the text include a broader range of people, such as the author himself, Asaph. And all his readers, as evidenced by the fact that he calls them my people. He moves from saying that he will do certain things, notice the I will in verse 2, to what we will do in verse 4. And so in the uh, first eight verses alone, various generations are mentioned several times. Verse 1, adults. Verse 4, the children, the coming generation it's called. Verse 6, the generation yet unborn. This is the grandchildren that comes along. And so the writer is urging them, all these fathers, to connect with the next generation. Verse 4, tell the coming generation. Verse 6, that the generation, next generation might know. And verse 8, that they, that is the next generation, should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart was not steadfast. There's something you need to do, even if you have failed in the past. We must teach 
and reach the ears and minds and hearts of our children that they might be steadfast in their love and devotion to God. Now, this psalm, it was this psalm that Jesus used himself in Matthew thirteen thirty-five, in passing along his own teachings and parables and, and compared it to that about the, who God is and what God has commanded us to do. And it seems here also that the Apostle Paul used this same psalm warning God's people in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that they should not be unfaithful to a faithful God. This is, this is our, our real challenge in this life, to be faithful to a faithful God, not unfaithful to our faithful God. This psalm was meant to be a mirror, therefore, to look back into our own souls as it was for them in that day to urge us to pass along to our children the things that matter most. Now, looking at this down to the fourth bullet, verses 9 to 72 covers a period of roughly 500 years of history. Biblically, it extends from the, the book of Exodus up through Second Samuel or from Moses to David. It's not a thorough history. It doesn't give every detail or the psalm would be a lot longer, and it's a long one. But it's a carefully crafted retelling of the specific incidents that provide some insight so they would learn from history rather than repeat history in the next generation. So when we look over this, verses 1 through 8 are a prologue in which the psalmist tells us what we must do. We must share this with the next generation. Here are lessons to be learned. I'm about to teach them to you, he says. And then verses 9 to 72 is the history lesson that gives us why we need to do what he says, what we need to do, and why we need to do this. And so Asaph now takes us through a history lesson twice. You know, sometimes we don't get it the first time. And so we have to repeat something. And that's why, because we don't get it the first time. So you have to repeat something, okay? So that's, that's what he's doing here. He's going through it twice. The history lessons here uh, that he goes through involved nine verses 9 through 39 and then verses 40 to 72 and in your text as I do in my text I will divide that off so I can see I'm looking at two different retellings of this for its own purpose now the first survey that he does in in through verse 39 it's introduced in 9 through 11 emphasizing that God's people have forgotten something there's something you have forgotten that you need to remember you can go back and check it for yourself I don't have time to work through the whole text but the second survey, there from 40 to 42 introduction, it gives us the same thing with a twist. It says there's something you did not remember. You forgot something here. You didn't remember this. These are things you better not forget and that you better remember. The shift is subtle, but when you work through the psalm, and sometime maybe I'll preach it if I get an opportunity here, but look then at verses 9 through 39, and here we discover four themes in this song that we must remember about God and what he does and how he works with his people. First, there is God's redemption. God acts to deliver his people. You'll notice I've given you two sets of verses, one for the first part and one for the repeat, because he does this in both sections. He talks about God's redemption. I've redeemed you. I've taken care of you. Then there's God's provision. God act, uh, acts to care for his people. And again, there's two sections, one for each repetition. And then there's God's judgment. So God redeems, God provides, 
But then God has to bring judgment. Why? Because God acts to correct his people. You, you discipline those you love. Why do you discipline your children? You discipline them because you love them. You want them to learn to do what's right, to have the right kind of heart. And then finally, we see God's love. God acts to show mercy toward his people because even though you failed, I still love you. Even though you blew it again, I still love you. And I will care for you. And you see this emphasized in both sections as well. And he shows his mercy also as the psalm ends on the theme of God as shepherd. We need a shepherd. Well, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. So all of that is there in this particular psalm. So um, let's move on then. And since God is our shepherd, look how Psalm 80 begins here right after all of this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph, that's uh, a synonym for Israel. He will, through the Psalms, he will call out all the tribes one time or another in talking about this. Who will lead, you will lead Joseph like a flock. You who in, are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Look at... Uh, here he's, he goes on to say, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. So they're in exile. What do they want? They want restoration. What does he say here? Restore us. Now look at verse 7. Restore us, O Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Verse 19. Restore us, O Lord of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Here is an echo of the ironic blessing that, Lord, let your face shine upon us. We need to see that smile of your face. We need for you to shine on us so that we will be saved. What Asaph is seeking here is restoration. He's looking for a new exodus. Again, we hear that over and over. Now, I want us to jump over eight other psalms, though I've got some here, so I can get through as much as I can. We go to Psalm 89, and we come to the final psalm in book 3. Let's see... Have we come to any kind of conclusions here? Remember, we began with crisis and confusion. Here we're going to see truth, but also tension. So in this psalm, Ethan, the Ezraite, is the only psalm that we have of his in the Psalter. He looks to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to keep his promises to David, his servant. And he only mentions that in verse 1 and 2 and 5 and 8, and 14, and 24, and 28, and 33, and 49. And you say, it's up on the screen. Why are you saying all those verses? So you get the point. (laughs) The point is, over and over and over, he keeps coming back to these two things. God's steadfast love, which is the word kesed. It's the word of grace in the New Testament. His grace, His love to us is consistent, and He is faithful. The word here means emeth. It's truth. He is a God of truth, and He will keep what He says He will do. So these are strong words here that are coming out. Verses 3 and 4, God has sworn. He says, 
I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne to all generations. Wow, isn't that wonderful that God swore all of that? But what's happening around us? In verse 1, he said, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My mouth will make known your faithfulness to all generations. But if you look at the tail, the end of this psalm, the bookend to this psalm, what do you read in verse 49? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Okay, I know you said this, but I don't see this. This is crisis. I mean, his faith is being tested, torn. So, where is it? Again, let's do a quick overview of the psalm. See if you recognize what you're about to see. What is that? It's not a kiosk. It's a chiasm, okay? This is where the psalmist writes in a style, so he takes something toward the center, and he pulls back, and he's repeating himself. So he started out by saying, God's forever faithful love to David. This is what he's talking about, verses 1 to 4. This is what God promised. He backed that up in verses 5 to 16 of this psalm. Go back and read it for yourself this afternoon. We see the saving power of God. This is what God can do. And then we come to the center, the core, the central theme here. And that's God's covenant with David. And he goes over this. Look at this. 20-some verses, 21 verses, 17 to 37. And he remembers that covenant. And he's going to talk about it. More about that in a minute. Then... We come back, and we're coming, moving back now. We've, we've gotten to the core, and now he's coming back out, and he says, but here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the rejecting wrath of God, and the word wrath is used in this next section. And then he ends up saying, so where is your faithful love that I talked about in verses 1 through 4? So this is, this is marvelously structured for us, but it's more important for us to see what's going on here in truth. Having celebrated God's steadfast love and faithfulness in those opening verses, praise breaks forth, first in heaven and then on earth in verses 5 to 16, for the awesome power of God who has delivered them in the past, all he has done. Ethan then affirms that God chose and anointed David, verses 19 and 20, and promised to build his house to make David's name great in all the earth, giving him victory over his foes, verses 21 to 24. They don't see the victory. Where's all this? Verse 26, God had said to David, I will be your father, you will be my son. And God promised his covenant would stand firm, verse 28, and would be his offspring would be established, verse 29. And furthermore, if that's not enough, I mean, Ethan is working this. God, here's what you said. Furthermore, even if David's offspring would fail in walking in the law of the Lord and endure punishment, verses 30 to 32, he says this. He said, yet... The Lord promised, you promised not to remove David, David and his steadfast love. God would not violate his covenant. Okay, there's my case, Lord. I'm presenting it here. So, verse 38, however, a shroud of darkness comes over the text. But now, 
you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. Verse 38. God would pour out his wrath on his anointed. I'm hearing some echoes here. Maybe the psalm is talking about something greater, something bigger, something later. But it appears, it appears in this moment of time that the covenant has been renounced. This is verse 39. The crown has been defiled. In fact, verse uh, 39b says that it's lying in the dust. The walls of the city of God have been breached and the enemies scorn and rejoice. So, not surprisingly here, Ethan is full of questions, six of them in verses 46 to 49. But here is the burning question right there in verse 49. Where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Here Ethan hopes, he hopes for an answer before he dies. That's what you read in the text here. Now, before I'm put in the grave, I hope I get to see these promises fulfilled because I'm not seeing anything right now. But look at two other questions in verse 48, how this continues to weave that along. Lord, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, from death and the grave? Who? Who? Ethan? Let me tell you something. I don't want to get to that yet. You know, you're very right. Who can do that? Who can conquer the grave? Who can overcome? Ethan, you're very close to the answer with a capital A. And this is where James Hamilton makes a very good quote. The midday crucifixion darkness of Psalm 89, where we are there, set the stage for the rising of the sun, S-O-N, on the third day, that he might be seated at the right hand of God. You see, this is looking beyond. It's looking to true restoration this is a beautiful psalm for you to go back and meditate on so crisis of faith yep do we really believe God even when things are dark and difficult do you believe do I believe God when things are going rough this is our transition into book four. Oh, and I hope it's better I hope it's better Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106, and we find hope and restoration. Someone has said this, that if Book 3 emphasizes Israel's exile and suffering, Book 4 focuses on, on the Lord's sovereignty and His promise to bless Israel. Godfrey that I, Robert Godfrey that I quoted earlier believes that the comfort and assurance that God's people need in these moments now comes through the foundation of remembering the creation and the covenant, creation and covenant uh, in book four is going to be a theme. In fact, uh, creation assures them that God has the power to do it, and covenant assures them of God's promises that he will do these things. So these truths will appear in some form or combination in 16 of the 17 psalms that come before us, either creation or covenant or both. So we come to Psalm 90. In the opening um, psalm uh, from Moses in book 4, 
there's this strong reminder. Look at this first bullet. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's good to hear the voice of Moses right now. It's good to hear from the man who wrote down the law of God. All generations. He's not living, but they found this psalm, and it works right now at this critical time. And so Ezra, Nehemiah, others who were putting this all together include this psalm at this juncture. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting, you are God. You know what? In the original, it is so much more dramatic. I have it here for you. From everlasting to everlasting, God. It doesn't say you are. Look, it's all about God. God's got this. Let God be God. God's power and promises have not failed. Rather, His people have sinned, verses 10 and 11. And they need to repent and seek God's face for restoration. So, these encouragements flow from God's people then in this, in this particular psalm. Have pity, it comes from Moses, but in, on behalf of God's people, because he was always interceding, you remember, for his people. He had to, or God was going to kill them all in the wilderness. Have pity, verse 13. Satisfy us, verse 14. Make us glad. We need some happiness here. Verse 16. Let your work be shown. It's kind of like when I was babysitting a couple of weeks ago for seven kids and having homeschool with them, and I was the teacher and the teacher says, show me your work. <laughs> I got an answer there, but show me your work. God, let your work be shown. And let the favor, the grace of the Lord our God be upon us. Verse 17. At this critical point in their history then, their current situation, there needed to be a word of encouragement to restore their hope. And the reality check comes right here in Psalm 90. So, when you think back to Moses, Moses led the first exodus. And this helps people to look for another exodus from the present exile in which they now find themselves. Here's what Schreiner says. Moses reflects on the brevity of human life and its futility because of sin. Hence, those who are wise will number their days, pondering how quickly one's sojourn on earth passes. But the Lord is the everlasting God. And human life is meaningful if we are satisfied with the Lord's steadfast love. Not all the other things of the world. But if we're satisfied with the steadfast love of God so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The good and the bad. Because we know the Lord loves us through all those things. Now, Having mentioned the Lord being the dwelling place, we come to Psalm 91, and the theme is picked up again. Psalm 91 had spoken of, uh, Psalm 90 had spoken of God's dwelling place for all generations. Now 91 picks it up saying, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And as a result, look what happens. God will deliver, verse 3. You, in Him you will find refuge, verse 4. He will be faithful, verse 4, again, the end. And the wicked will be judged. God's going to put everything right. And then another reference to the Lord being their dwelling place and refuge appears in verse 9. Let's look at that verse. 
Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you, no plague shall come near your tent. Verse 14, he will hold fast to you in his love. Verse 16, he will show you his salvation. This is their comfort and hope in restoration. God keeps assuring them through the word of God, through these Psalms, that God is going to make everything right. Don't fret. Let's move to, no, let's go on. My time is running short, and I still got a few psalms to go. I want you to look here. Psalm 93 to 100 are called royal psalms. They celebrate the Lord as our king. And so I want you to follow a thread or a theme through these psalms. And it's going to be quick. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns, verse 1. You see those words sitting there. Psalm 94, in verses 1 and 2, you get the idea of the Lord judges. Why does he judge? Because he is the king. Psalm 95, verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. How do you respond to a great God and king like this? He tells us in verse 7. So, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He made all those things. He made us too. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We are in his hands and under his protective care even when things don't seem to be going right. And therefore, he says, be careful. You must not harden your heart, verses 7 and 8. Or put God to the test, verse 9, like they did in the wilderness. Because if we do... We will not enter into that rest. Psalm 96 continues the thread. Verse 10, the Lord reigns. Verse 4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Verses 7 to 9, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Why do we do this? Verse 13, because he will judge the world in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. And so Psalm 97, ho-hum, here it is again, the Lord reigns. I mean, it's all through here. Aslan's on the move. The king is coming. And there are awesome visual descriptions of this great God that follow in verse 4. If you take care to read that this afternoon or some other time this week. Verse 8, though, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice Because of your judgments, O Lord, when that judgment comes, when God sets everything right, there will be joy, gladness, rejoicing. Verse 10, he preserves the life of his saints. He takes us through, he preserves us, and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Praise God for that. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim and let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. And then I could say this. uh, After all this comes many uh, psalms of thanksgiving and praise and worship, especially Psalm 100, which is one of my favorite, but I have to move on here. 
Uh, my time is running out rather quickly, and I'm praying for God to slow down the clock or break the clock. Uh, Psalm 103, the Psalm of David here, one of the most cherished of the Psalms. In part, that is so because of its assurance to us of pardon. How many times have I come to this Psalm in my life to get some assurance? This is a blessed Psalm. Look here. It says that the Lord forgives, verse 3, he heals, verse 3, he redeems, verse 4, he shows steadfast love, verses 4, 8, 11, 17. Hmm. Do you see a pattern here sometimes with certain words through the Psalms? His steadfast love, his faithfulness to us. In addition, he shows mercy, verse 4, grace, verse 8, compassion, verse 13. Why? For he knows our frame, he remembers we are dust. This piece of dirt needs to be reminded of these things. Seriously. We need to know that God cares and loves us. And that, verse 12, as far as the east from, from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Limitless. And the Lord, who has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all, he will keep his covenant. Have faith, trust, and be faithful. Verses 18 and 19 is that's what it's telling us there. By the way, I would love just to sit here right now and read Psalm 104. It's one of the most beautiful, pastoral, picturesque nature poems you'll ever want to read. I read it a couple of times, so I've got to read that to class. But number one, I'm not a great reader. Number two, it is so personal when you read it. I want to encourage you as the spring begins to blossom here in winter, uh, I hope that you'll sit down maybe sometime and look out your window and read this psalm or go out to a meadow somewhere or go into a forest. Read this poem and let its pictures pour over your mind and soul about the love and the care of God for you, his people, in the midst of his creation. Psalm 104 is beautiful. Psalm 105 and 106, historical psalms. Um, let me get to those that are uh, highlighting God's promises and God's faithfulness. And he moves through the covenant of Abraham, which was confirmed to his offspring in verses 7 through 15. And we see the hand of God in the story of Joseph. You want to learn some things about Joseph you never knew? Read this psalm and read verses 16 to 22. You'll find out how bad it was for Joseph at times. And there was a bondage in Egypt, and then there was deliverance through Moses and Aaron. There was guidance and protection and provision in the wilderness, all because, verse 42, he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. He made a promise, what, a thousand years before, but God doesn't forget. I forget things like that. God remembers his covenant. He remembers his covenant with you, and he will keep it. He brought them into the land of Canaan and gave them what he had promised in verses 43 to 45. Should they now doubt him? If God has done all of this, should they doubt him now in their distress? No. Psalm 106 will remind them of their failures, and yet God, in spite of those failures, will remember his covenant because of the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 45 and so they pray in verse 47. 
Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And verse 48 therefore records the closing doxology of book 4, and that brings us to book 5. And I've still got plenty of time to cover all that, right? No. Book 5 is comprised of 44 psalms, the most of any of the books. The hallmark of this collection is praise. And each of the first four books of the psalms ends with a doxology, while this last section, book 5, is filled with praises to Yahweh, culminating in Psalms 146 to 150. And there's a sense now, as we move into Psalm 107, it's much lighter It's much more joyful. There's a great sense of anticipation. There's been a return from the exile. God's people are being gathered from every nation from where they have been taken. Book 5 is known for several special groupings of psalms. Psalm 113, 118 is known as the Hallel Psalms, the praise psalms that historically have been used in the season of Passover. Psalms 120 to 134 are psalms of ascent, songs sung by by pilgrims as they ascended the hills and the mountains on their way to Jerusalem to worship in God's holy hill and his temple for the great feast days of the year. And there were several of those. And Psalm 138 to 145 are ascribed to David. Here are his last words to his people to encourage them. Now, at this point, I've got about six minutes. So uh, close your eyes as I pass through some things here. I should just skip over these in another way. This is what you would have gotten if I could have talked faster, and I don't think I could have. Oh, Psalm 118, I wish you could have seen that one. You just did. Uh, Okay, I think I can get to the Psalm 139. God knows me in every way. God is with me in every place. God cares for me in every detail. Psalm 139. Oh, that's so good. Psalm 145. Let me do a quickie here. Psalm 145 was composed by David. Final Saul from his quill. The one who was known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Jewish tradition tells us that this poem was recited three times each day, morning, noon, and night. A fitting way to give daily praise and gratitude to God. This is also the last of the acrostic psalms. That's interesting. He concluded on going back to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh, he, he chose each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet to begin each line at this final poem, 145. But it's more than playing with the alphabet. He reveals a thoughtful reflection and an artistic expression from the man after God's own heart. The psalm opening closes with notes of praise. He says here, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Verse 21, my mouth will speak praise to the Lord. So he's committed to this in the entire psalm. James Montgomery Boyce said, this is a monumental praise psalm, a fit summary of all David had learned about God during a long lifetime of following hard after the Almighty. And this psalm talks about the greatness of God, that it is unsearchable, powerful, majestic. He talks about the goodness of God in verses 7 through 9. His righteousness, his graciousness, his mercy and tender love. He talks about the glory of God, that it's a glorious kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a sovereign kingdom. And he talks about the grace of God, that the Lord will be near 
that he will save and he will preserve all who love him. What great promises, final promises from the mouth of David. And then Psalm 150. The book of Psalms has been called God's hymnal. It opens with a great promise. Blessed is the man. Challenging us to live obediently and to walk in the way of righteousness. But because we live in a fallen world, we, we are burdened. We feel burdened, not blessed. And that's why Psalm t- from t- Psalm 2 onward, there is a relentless expression of burdens and problems and hardships and toils and anxieties that strike a responsive chord in my heart and probably in yours too. I tend to live in the early Psalms. I should live more in the later Psalms. But the test for us is in keeping, keep trusting God and to continue walking in His ways. And that's why those psalms are filled not only with encouragement, but with prayer. God, I need you. God, please deliver me. How many times have I prayed with a psalmist? Those kind of things. This psalm, 150, is full of life and passion and energy, enthusiasm. By the way, that very word means God in you, in theos, God in you, flows from every line and spills from the page here. His theme is worship. His invitation is that we offer to God our ceaseless praise. And notice here again how the psalm begins and how it ends. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Or it's a simple Hebrew word, hallelujah. He is praising God. It's arranged as poetry. We find six verses, 13 lines. Every one of them calls for praise. I call it a baker's dozen fresh from his heart. 13 things there. And here we answer questions in Psalm 150. Where we worship, why we worship how we worship, who must worship. You read it for yourself and find out. But here's my challenge as we close. What we learn from this last psalm is simply this. Praise Him. Everywhere you go, for everything He is, with everything you have, and with every breath you take. That's what Psalm 150 tells us. And this is the fullness of the book of Psalms right here to give our lives in praise to Him. I want to encourage you that in the coming days, you take time now to read through the Psalms. I've, given you, I've tried to give you a, a, an introduction over the last five weeks, a taste, a feel for what the Psalms are like. I've challenged you about reading five Psalms a day according to the day of the month. So you come up on March and we are there. On the first day you read Psalm 1, Psalm 31, Psalm 61, Psalm 91, Psalm 121. Five Psalms in a day. You do that and after one month you've read through the book. And do that for as long as you care to. I once did that for a whole year. Along with some other reading. But I found during that year, I was so blessed to know that there's a God who has... What kind of love? Steadfast love. I should have looked up how many times that's there. I'm going to look that up. Steadfast love. And who is faithful? Faithful. That's your God. Who is like your God? Who is like our God? You ever heard a pastor say that? It's because he's been living here. May you live here as well. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. I pray it's been a encouragement to the hearts of your people and may each of us as we look at our lives and sometimes we 
we cast our head down and we wonder, Lord, how long, how long? But Lord, we know that you still hold us in your hand and you love us and you will be faithful. So bless your people and bless us now as we go over to hear again from the book of Psalms as he preaches in Hebrews. Hebrews quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book. And so I pray, Father, that you will encourage our hearts as we see how much better Jesus is so that we might love and faithfully serve him all the days of our lives to praise him everywhere we go for everything he is with everything we have by every breath that we take. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you.